welcome to Kid Tech, the podcast about the people and influencers behind the scenes in the digital kids media sector. Today, I am actually once again in San Francisco uh, with Bjorn Jeffrey, who is best known for being founder, co-founder and CEO of Takabaka. Welcome. Thank you so much. So I want to ask many questions about Takabaka. In fact, I want to ask many questions about all the things that you've seen, because I think from my perspective and from many others, you know, you sort of defined a huge amount of the kids' digital space and the kids' digital game space um, over the last few years. Um, you're obviously best known for founding Takabaka. Um, I suppose for people's context, um, and we'll go into sort of the history, but Takabaka today is, is, has been downloaded an absurd number of times, right? It's probably, together with Sega Mini, it's probably about 250 million downloads in the world. Maybe more. I'm not sure. I'm not up to date with the latest figure. But when I left, it was it was about 200 million downloads. In many countries? All the countries that you could uh, that, that you can access through the App Store. So it was, it was, it was very, very international. I mean, our, our, um, the monetization was primarily focused on the obvious markets, so the US, UK, and those sorts of things, but the, so the general download volume and the enthusiasm was very much a global phenomenon. Um, interestingly so, we, we weren't, we tried to design for that, but that actually worked quite well. But then the ways of making money in these different mm. markets is a very different story. I want to get to that a little bit later, but let's let's go right back to the origin story. So you started Takabaka in 2010, I think. Yes, 2010 together with a uh, colleague of mine at the time called Emil Uvemar. So the two of us, we were working together at um, Bonnier Group, which is a 200-year-old media company, uh, seventh generation of, well, they're called Bonnier. That's, the, that's their surname, so that's why it's the Bonnier Group. Right. Um, started as a book publisher a very long time ago and then sort of gradually expanded into television, broadcast, uh, you know, broadcasting generally, cinema, magazines, newspapers, those sorts of things. And Emil and I are working together at the research and development team, which was a very, very small, maybe I think we were six people. Mm -hmm. And at the time, the whole company was maybe 11,000. So a very like tiny, tiny unit. And was that R&D group focused on kids or? Not at all. Um, And and that's, uh, we weren't looking at that whatsoever. Actually, we, we were trying to, for the first part, trying to digitize existing businesses that we already had, which is a very difficult and a very ungrateful thing to do. Um, we had a, we tried to digitize magazines, for instance. They'd made a, Bonnie Group had made a, an acquisition of American magazines early in 2008. Right. That is not a super great time to be buying advertising-based uh, media hmm. um, because you know when Lehman Brothers crashed, everything just disappeared. So, right. so a lot of the time initially was trying to figure out, is there a new way of selling magazines in a digital way? Uh, and we made a magazine concept called Mag Plus at the time, which was sort of a pre-iPad, uh, it was yes, prototype, basically saying, envisioning if there is a large-ish iPhone coming to the market, what could you do with that from a magazine perspective? It was very much a thought experiment. Sort um, of like a think. flipboard, an early flipboard type model? Yeah, you could say that. But of course, this was, uh, and this was the, the problem that we ended up in. This was just a video rendering, and that was sort of a design project, which was more, more of a, like, sparking some, some, some thoughts around it could be something like this. Right. And then it was a large debate. I was actually in San Francisco when this happened. Me and my, my uh, boss at the time, uh, Sara Orval, and we were saying, are we going to publish this on the internet or not? It's like, We'll do it. We'll see. You know, right. No one knows. And we published it because it was really supposed to be an internal document. 
uh, an internal video to show the, the respective magazine divisions. And this video just blew up hmm. and, and became a huge hit because I think partially some people misunderstood it for being a hardware prototype. And they thought it was like, this is a new iPad. It was a piece of cardboard with a green screen. So <laughs> they were like, can you send me some hardware? Like, I think you're going to be disappointed. <laughs> like, this is literally a piece of cardboard. Um, and it was just a good time because the iPad, pre-iPad hype was super strong. Mm -hmm. So getting some sort of sense for what this could be was very, very, uh, it was just a good timing. Perfect, perfect timing. Better timing than we had expected. However, the success of this video then caused some trouble because the executives looked at this success and said, well, this is amazing. We now have to make this product. And of course, going to make a sort of a, an iPad CMS publishing type system from a video, like those two have nothing to do with each other. Obviously, it's like, well, you know, saying that we might have started from nothing because we had only a video file. And that was a very tricky thing to do. And that's luckily we kind of stepped out of that, Emil and I, and started looking at some other things. And that's that's kind of how we, we that, that was our background before we ended up in the Taco Baca But how, how did you go from there to kids and, and Taco Baca? Well, then, what, what was the connection? The R&D thing kind of disbanded a little bit after that because right. it sort of, it, it, this magazine thing took so much resources. So half the team was only working with that. And right. so it disbanded a little bit. And I was responsible for looking at new things. So Ian and I, I made this little model basically saying, these are 12 criteria of things that when we look at ideas, we're going to screen them based on these 12 criteria, based on all the projects that we've done before. This wasn't things that necessarily would be, you couldn't use it for anything, but you could use it in the context that we were in, mm -hmm. which is this will not work within Vonier because we've already tried that and it doesn't work. So, right. so there was 12 criteria. So we went through a long, long list of potential ideas and areas that we thought were interesting, but kids was one of them. So the thing that we saw, um, one of the criteria was like trying to design for a consumer behavior that has already happened as opposed to something that you wish would happen. So the, different, the behavior in kids was... Was like, if, if you said a few years earlier then, like parents are going to buy a, a technical device with a glass front for $500 and they're going to give that to a three-year-old, people would have said, that is insane. Why on earth would anyone do that? Yet, that is what people were doing. Mm. So the magazine was starting in the opposite end, which is saying, we wish that people would pick up an iPad and read a magazine, but no one was doing that. Mm. So we're trying to change consumer behavior, we're trying to make you do something. Whereas the kid thing had already happened. Mm. So we didn't, had no part in inventing it. We had a, 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 some, some part in making it successful and turning it into a business and commercializing it and sort of upping the quality level significantly. But the behavior had already happened. And that was one of this criteria. And that was one of the main things for me that was interesting of the kids space. It's like, this is an odd thing. It's odd that people are doing this and that they are allowing these devices to be used in this way. But here we are. You know? And so what was your first proof of concept, I suppose? How did you test that, that theory? We did, not, we did not do this the normal way. Like normally you would do, the Silicon Valley way would be, throw something out, an MVP, and kind of see what sticks. Mm. We did not do that. We spent four and a half months doing research, um, just the two of us, uh, and figuring out, well, one idea was we were going to buy something. Mm. Um, and we thought if we could acquire something, that's generally how Bonnier has grown historically. Mm. They sort of, they're large companies, like media companies in the US really, you know, with the big studios, they see something interesting, and, and before it gets too big, they buy it and then they move on. Sure. 
Um, and that's what I thought we were going to do first. And then, because I thought we were quite late to the game, this had already happened. After looking, sort of seeing what was out there, I realized this market has not even started yet. So at the time when you were looking at it, you were presumably seeing most of it, most of the desktop-based virtual worlds. Is that what you were seeing as a, as a peer group? I was. I mean, we were looking very touch screen heavy, but but and there were sort of there were a few oddities here and there. That there was no kids category. Things were kind of lurking in the games and education category. Mm -hmm. There were a few that kind of looked big, but when you saw the actual market size. And more importantly, we spoke to the people behind it. I remember it was a French company, I don't remember the name of it now. They were pretty dominant. Mm. It's two guys. Mm. That's it. And and that's when we realized that, you know, there's nothing to buy here. But actually, this is much, much earlier than we first thought. We could probably make this instead. Mm. Um, and that's how we managed to convince them to give us some money to hire some people and start our own team. So we hired a team, prepared everything during the autumn of 2010. And then I think January 5th, 2011 started building. Uh, and then we released two first apps, Helicopter Taxi, Toka Tea Party, March 15th, 2011. So about a year development time? No, three months. Oh, three months, sorry. I'm yeah, so super, wow. super fast. And we were a team of seven. Wow. So we were working very, very quickly and, and put out 10 apps in the first year, um, which is from the same from the same team, or did you expand it? Mm, I expanded it a little bit, um, but we were really trying. We were going very wide. Yeah. The idea we had a very strong idea from the research on what the brand is going to be like, what's missing, what are sort of the traits and characteristics that we need to have. But of course, we had no validation in terms of what's going to work. Mm. So we thought we we have to try. Um, experiences in quite a wide range, anything from sort of helicopter taxi, which is not even live anymore, which is sort of a early, it looked AR-ish, it wasn't really AR, but it looked AR-ish, right. to Toka Tea Party, which was kind of treating the iPad as a, as a table, and you used sort of dolls and stuffed toys around it, and it was sort of like a mixed physical digital play. You had the third app was Toka Doctor, which was mini games, mm. kind of Wario, uh, style game, those sorts of things. So when you look at it and you zoom out and you look at sort of the, the portfolio of the things that we put out, it's very clear we were just like, we got to try everything to oh. see what works. Were you deliberately targeting a specific audience range in the kids space? Like, were you deliberately going preschool or were you, were you more testing on game mechanics or did you even know? Um, we had an idea it was 3-6 right. and we had no real support for that other than we thought you needed to be around 3 in order to sort of have the right. uh, certain types of interactions, you know, pinching and, and, right. and doing things, it's certain types of interactions that you, you needed a certain type of motor skill to be able to do. So we tried not, we didn't go for babies or anything like that, we were definitely older than that. Mm. But it, that changed over time a lot So mm. and, and, and it aged up more, uh, considerably more when I left. It was almost all six to nine and mm -hmm. uh, we left sort of the early stages entirely but in the beginning it was much more exploratory and that was our our idea was three to six and then but then you know the, the we never really got a perfect data set of exactly where it ended up well, anecdotally it seemed to be somewhere there right, in the right. beginning and how so i mean after the first year you were you were getting traction but what, what did everything look like sort of in you know 12 months after you launched the first title or the first three titles 
12 months after it looked good, six months in did not look so good. Really? Uh, it was, I was very stressed because this was a very unusual situation where we managed to get um, this sort of big, we're now like, we were running as an independent company, right. but we had one large owner, 100% owner. And were you, you were physically housed in Bonnier? No, we had a, we had our own office right. uh, and, and we, that we shared with some other Bonnier companies as well. We shared it with a customer database, which is an interesting, interesting neighbor to have. Um, but we use nothing from Bonnier. Like we've never used, a, a, you know, a penny of advertising space, uh, never used any sort of collaborations or any, nothing structural. There've only been sort of a, a silent owner that is like a friendly bank, you know? Right. We, but, but, but yeah, those are generally contradictions in terms, right? Friendly banks and, and silent owners, particularly when it comes to like big corporates. I'm surprised that they were, you're describing them as being very patient. Well, they were, well, well, six months in, this is what I was questioning. Like, right. How long are they going to be patient? And, and, huh. and we started to see sort of tendencies, but I, I almost, I was getting very stressed thinking maybe this is never going to take off mm. and, and I'm going to have to fire all these people, you know, within the first nine months, cause this is never going to work and I'm never going to get funded for another year. So I, I almost sold our first app to, uh, Thomas Cook. Uh, the airline, really? <laughs> uh, yeah, as some sort of branded entertainment thing, it's going to turn helicopter taxi into some sort of thing that you could have with their aeroplane. I, I was just Maybe. scrambling to try to figure out some money. But as I was ne- sort of negotiating that, talking to them about that, uh, Toka Hair Salon came out, and this started to take off. This was Toka Hair Salon One, which has now become this long, very successful series. But Toka Hair Salon One was the first one that started to sort of really move and ranked really well. And we were starting to get a little bit better at the marketing and figure out how do you actually get anything out into the world. Uh, so as that was like, this is starting to work. I kind of never sold to Thomas Cook afterwards, and they may may not have bought it. I and mean, I, you never know. But it was my desperation level went down a little bit, and I was kind of. A little bit more confident to lean in and think this might actually work. And just on that point about marketing and opening up, because back then, I mean, it was pretty early in terms of you yeah. know, kids apps and, and that whole concept of the kids app ecosystem. What were you doing, you know, when you launched that title? What, what did you learn? What were you doing differently? We were we're doing a lot of stuff that that you could not. That that works very differently now. Like the tactics could not work now. We were very. Uh, just opportunistic and hustly like we were right. trying to you know facebook's algorithm was different you had more visibility from a page it was worth kind of buying likes mm-hmm. and buying people to sign up just to get some visibility for that you mm-hmm. could so, social work differently there were uh, the the algorithm worked differently you, you could rank quicker and faster right. with right. sort of more of these sort of boost um boost effects if you got a lot of synchronous downloads which is still true to this day, but it had a disproportionately large effect then. So there were certain services that could get basically a lot of, I don't know, low low quality traffic that served a purpose of rank, of pushing you up the charts. Right. And then you got better traffic once you were on the charts. That as a mechanic has not really changed noticeably, hmm. but of course there have been a lot of factors to try to deter people from doing that. And there've been, you know, uh, the old like app gratis was a French site that they turned off and shut down, but they were all doing similar sorts of things. So a lot of companies in that space, right. uh, I think it's gotten, gotten a lot more sophisticated. Um, since then it was almost no targeting to talk about whatsoever. Um, I remember distinctly running a very, very early version of Tapjoy and sort of, you know, 
turning the campaign on, so to speak, and within five minutes had a thousands of dollars in overdraft, which I didn't <laughs> even know was a concept that, that existed. Like, how is it possible that I owe you more money than I put into this system? I'd even, and, and they were basically saying, well, it went so quickly that we could not control it. You know, that, but that was said a lot about sort of the time. It was just, it was like the Wild West. Uh, everyone was trying things out and there was very little control, very little precision and just the general, can we try this? I guess so, because why not? You know? Let's see what happens. Yeah, that, that's kind uh, of where we were. And monetization has pretty much always been based around a paid model, yeah. essentially. Uh, did you, was that always the intention or did you come to that? Um, it was always the intention because of the context that we were in then. So you have to think back, this is then late 2010. This is when Smurf Village came out mm. and, and the Smurf buried, like the first time you really saw um, products intended for children that had rampant misuse of in-app purchases. Mm. This is prior to uh, kids category. This is prior to parental gates. This is prior to any sort of uh, OS level control for uh, in-app purchase spending. You could buy Smurf berries for $99 a mm. click, a tap, uh, and you could buy a lot of them and it did happen. So we felt then that we needed to position ourselves very clearly against that. We are not that. This mm -hmm. is not predatory um, intent. We we need to charge up front, um, and that's going to be the business model, at least for the time being. Then over time, those things changed. Like the the, so the circumstances around it changed quite a lot. Um, In-app purchases in 2019 is very different than in-app purchases in 2011. Mm -hmm. um, but we stuck with it, and maybe arguably we stuck with it too long because it, it's. I felt like the paid list and the free list were much more similar then. Mm. And since then they have diverged enormously. And of course the paid market has shrunk mm. considerably, uh, even from, from where it was, whereas the free market has taken off like a rocket ship. So, so um, yeah, we, we, we had some sort of legacy, which makes a lot of sense if you think about the context then, but those decisions maybe arguably hung around longer than they needed to. Do you think today, parents are less inclined to pay for, for apps for their kids? There's a general feeling of good enough, I think. Uh, and, and this is a low interest category. And it's always been a low interest category. I, I tended to compare it to things like the cinema. When, when, when there's a new film out, like there's a new Toy Story version or a Coco or a new Pixar film of, of any kind, everyone knows it's out. You don't necessarily go and see it, but you know that it's out. A new kids app is not even registered generally speaking, mm -hmm. like, no, this, this, this is not a cultural phenomenon that anyone talks about. Uh, and this is partly due to marketing spend, but it's also just not an, a category that, that is really discussed a lot. It's, a, it's something that you need with very, very specific, um, at a very specific point in time. Mm -hmm. For instance, I'm going on a road trip or I'm getting on an airplane and these sorts of things. You can see frantic parents at all, all uh, airports trying to solve what is inevitably going to be a challenging journey ahead on this, on this airplane. And that's when you need it right there, right then. But you don't necessarily think about it on a Tuesday night because right. it's not part of culture. And that, that makes it very, very challenging. And just going back to sort of that big release in that first year, uh, Toka Hair Salon, I mean, other than your ability to do marketing, understand marketing better, what was it about the game from a design perspective that, that made it click? What, what we got right on, on Tokyo Salon 1 was 
it was fun from the first swipe mm. and it was there was it was instant like you you see this character it's a scene it's a hair salon there's a character mm. that comes in you choose one and then you you pull your finger sort of swipe it across the hair and it cuts it straight away and then you get it it's right. it, it is fun instantly uh was, was that was that borrowed from Fruit Ninja? Was that around the same time, or did that? Well, it's that the same swiping mechanic. Yeah. Yes, but it was just and, and that that says Fruit Ninja had a similar similar thing. Yeah. It's called Fruit Ninja. Fruit flies up in the air. What am I going to do? Probably swipe. You know, yeah, slice yeah, it. That yeah, yeah. it makes sense. It's very intuitive, and we got that right. And I think the another thing that we got right, which was unintentional, but ha- that happened anyway, was this worked for older kids. This was actually for, we had adults, and we've always mm. had adults playing. Um, both older kids and adults playing the hair salon series because it's, it's disproportionately fun. It works for young kids, but it works so well for, for older older people too. And when you think about sort of your product, or going back then, your product development process and your design process, I mean, were you workshopping that with kids or yeah. were you involving them or, or how much did that contribute? Yeah, we had a team with sort of, we call them play designers. They still have that to this day, which is sort of, they... This was the and this was part of the original concept as well. That we're not going to make games; we're going to make toys, right. which is a distinct difference. In you cannot win in a toy; um, it, you just play. It's it's more akin to to uh, you know Lego or Playmobil or something like that. It's similar. It's like it's your own imagination that kind of um, creates the fun. Mm. Whereas in a game, it, you have an intent. There's a level, there's a timer, there's a high score, there's something to beat. Right. So we intentionally did not do any of that. So we looked for people that had a skill set in designing playful experiences, but not necessarily gaming mechanics, mm-hmm. uh, which is more sort of, you want them to keep, to, to keep going. And if a common trait with Tokoboka is, you can put a Tokoboka app down, come back three hours later, nothing has happened. Mm-hmm. Like there's no time, there's nothing's gonna run out. You can always put it down, have dinner, come back again, and there's no, social pressures or any sort of uh, you know pain point that occurs as a point of that and that is intentionally designed that way so as a part of that was we got to test with kids all the time to make sure is this even fun this is fun in theory but is this fun in practice and and that still to this day is a very sort of ingrained part of the design process is that particularly swedish thing or because i you you'd spoken about in an interview i read sort of the difference between learning in, in Sweden versus education in the US and how one is broad and one is narrow. And yeah. I was curious about the cultural approach and, and how much of an influence it was, if any. I think it's having, because now I've lived in the US for uh, about seven years. So now I'm, I'm getting, I'm, I'm turning slightly American, but I'm, I'm sort of British by birth, but grew up in Sweden. Mm. So I have, a, I have the sort of the both sides of the Atlantic perspective a little bit. And I think it was much more culturally um, specific to Scandinavia than I thought that it was when we did it, um, because we were all we were all Swedes, give or take, at least you know. Uh, and so, and everything was being developed in Sweden at the time, yeah. And then it, we were all we were all sort of there. And that I think this, the, the play based part of it was very true. And and the, the it was not until I got to America I really understood that education and children are almost synonymous. In the U.S., which is absolutely not the case in Scandinavia, and, and just can, unpack that statement. Yeah, it's just that it's almost well. To begin with, there was no kids category in the App Store. You assumed that anything for kids would be in the education category, and that's every time I met someone, I would say, "You know, oh, I make apps for kids," and they'd say, "Oh, great, you mean educational apps?" Like, no, not necessarily. You know, mm-hmm. as if 
that was the main purpose of all of the things is, uh, is whatever you're doing it should serve an educational purpose because that's what's going to um, further your child's development whereas in Scandinavia you, you look at that probably in a more holistic manner it's like education is a way of doing that there are also many other things you need to do in order to, to even if you have the same very you know American goal-oriented view of what you're going to do with your child which make him or her successful or happy or whatever that is even if you share that sentiment which a lot of parents do not but even if they did you could get to that point in many different ways and in Scandinavia it would be more well you need to uh, use your imagination and explore things and uh, and experiment and those sorts of things whereas in America it's more there's no time for that we need we, you know you need to get your your phonics right and get that right quickly because that's going to get you on the right path mm. and then we're going to be right it's a very different way of looking at children and childhood i think and that was something that we, we we tried to sort of talk about a lot but had a bit of a hard time getting to work in america it's very it's distinctly different but uh, yeah i mean talk about became a you know hugely popular brand um i think amongst parents and particularly amongst the silicon valley set i, I always thought it seemed to resonate here i'm not sure that that uh, it's true it was uh, or is i should say um but I'm not sure that they always understood why, because uh, there was sort of a, there was an element of a Trojan horse. Uh, we, for instance, had a, we took a very sort of strong stand in in gender equality, diversity. Mm. We were super strong in markets like Saudi Arabia, not markets that are super well known for their view of of gender equality and balance. So in that sense, like I'm not sure if they were actively selecting them on the basis of the values or if they even knew what it was. Same thing mm. about these digital toys and looking at childhood as something more sort of play oriented than something which is a performance based um, thing to do. But the kids like them and maybe they like the design of them and they didn't ask too many questions around it like this. I don't know this, but uh, since I, since I, you know, I left Tokoboka like a, more than a year ago now, it's kind of sobered up a little bit in that and that context can look of it. I can look at it from the outside now, mm. and I'm not sure that a lot of parents really knew why we were doing the things we did. They, they were just they liked that the kids liked the products, mm. and that was as simple as that. And it sold that purpose. And shifting gears a little bit and sort of moving moving through the timeline, you acquired Zinc Row in 2013. Yeah, you were Canadian. They were. Was, um, that, was that another? Was that was that? I, I actually, I mean, I've got a couple of questions, but my my first one just after listening to you is. Was that because of the cultural fit? Well, that certainly helped. Yeah. I met I met Jason Crow, who was the CEO of Synchro, which is at the time was a um, an agency which had mm. some of their own products right. as well. They called the Tickle Tap apps at the time. One of the right. sort of pioneers of, of screen based entertainment for children. Mm. I met him at a conference in LA, and we went to lunch and we bonded over how awful this conference was. And like <laughs> this is just a real joke. Why are we even here? Why are we listening to this? Because this has nothing to do with with the things that we'd like to do. And we clicked well in that point. And then we, I, you know, we kept those conversations going and more or less said, what if you could ditch all your clients, which saying that to anyone who's in professional services is a very compelling mm-hmm. pitch. <laughs> what if you could fire all your clients? And that's the dream statement. So, um, so that basically that's what happened. So we acquired the company, we acquired the apps, and then together we kind of redid it and turned TickleTap apps into what would then become Sega Mini, which was a, um, based uh, on, on the work that they'd done before and with a similar team, but kind of rebranded entirely. And then it became the uh, the, the preschool version, basically. So it was an independent studio, 
uh, that was based in Toronto in Canada. And that was, that did help, certainly. It was sort of a mixture between the US and then Sweden. We, we, could, we could understand both parts. <laughs> That's an excellent description of Canada. Yeah, it, 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 it's, it's a lovely middle ground. Um, but they, they ran as an independent studio and Jason was the CEO of that. And then we, we shared some resources and we shared a lot of knowledge and, and sort of strategy and partnership discussions, those sorts of things. But creatively, they were running their own thing and they still, still are today. And then in 2016, you launched Talker TV, which at the time I thought was just intriguing. And that was a subscription video platform. I can't it, remember if that was before or after the Spin Master acquisition. It was before, right. um, but, it, but it, it was one of the parts of it. It was, this was a tricky thing to do. This is, there's a lot to say, to say about this. Um, we got half of it right, I think. We got right in terms of, we looked at the, we, when we looked at sort of where kids were spending their time, we were seeing apps being a very, very small part of the total time being spent just on everything, regardless of whether it's fun stuff or it was you know, educational things or sports or whatever it was. And it's just apps was a very, very small part in terms of sort of minutes spent per day. Mm -hmm. And then our ambition with Dogabog was trying to build a new kind of brand for children that could go in many different places. But I thought it particularly was going to be challenging to get to that point if we're only in a category which basically gets no attention. Mm -hmm. So we needed to move into a new category in order for the brand to become something a bit more, a bigger, bigger part of it. And to me, the obvious sort of macro where we needed to go and what was only going to increase in importance was video. Mm. So this was the part that we got right. And then there was the part that we got completely wrong, which is the one I'm telling you about now. So, so far, so good. We need to expand the brand. We need to enter the video space. Uh, we need to sort of differentiate our products a little bit, but do things in a sort of with consistent values, um, but, but working for the respective platforms. Right. Second part was the paid business model was starting very, very seriously to break. And we're seeing like there's no growth in this market. There's very, or very little growth at least. Uh, and our growth was primarily by pushing other people out of the top list as opposed to kind of growing uh, the, the, the top of the, of the funnel. Growing we were just... Well, no, and that was not really happening. So the interest of moving towards subscription was interesting for us. And that was an important kind of business thing that that's, we could get some real revenue growth out of that. That seemed to be consistent with the video messaging here. Uh, sort of video is a category which historically has gone along with subscription. That's just, you know, SVOD and whatnot. That is a, uh, as a category which there's a, you know, there's general parental acceptance, Netflix and whatnot. You know, you're used to that. So that's not a foreign concept. Mm. Um, that was not necessarily the, the, the wrong conclusion, but the, what we needed to execute in order to get to earn those subscribers, we, we could not get right. Um, and, and I think in retrospect, we would have done, we would have been much, much better off not even trying to go head to head with any of those um, so what, streaming but, services that we did and not even, you know, we went head to head with YouTube effectively and lost brutally. And was that based on the breadth of content that you had on the platform or the distribution or? It was a number of things. It, 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 the product could have been much better, mm -hmm. considerably better. It was not, it was, it, it, we never got as close to the vision as we wanted. You know, we called it sort of TV you can touch, which was an interesting thing, but not something that we could actually, mm -hmm. in terms of the product, we never got to that point. Maybe we could have gotten there, but we didn't have time. And it took long enough just to sort of produce what would, what you would look at as an acceptable video player, mm -hmm. but not, not anything more than that. That was one thing. Secondly, like the YouTube is good enough for, for the vast majority. 
this is before Netflix had they had less kids programming than they had now but like mm-hmm. now and then still that was a sort of a it was a premium product but it was still a sort of a significant competitor but YouTube was the one that kept coming up all the time mm-hmm. more interestingly though was we've gotten sort of the promise of the brand wrong in this context because we did a lot of we did a lot of interviews trying to figure out after we launched it and that took a while in itself to, to sort of get it off the ground but once we had launched it it worked and I think we had I can't remember maybe 25,000 subscribers or something like that but that was just not enough and that then was not growing to the extent that, and, we, were, that we were hoping they were what, what was the, the monthly pricing on that five bucks I think it was five bucks yeah, yeah something like that so but then we so we, we did we did a sort of a research project to figure out well what's the problem basically like mm-hmm. why is this not growing and, and more or less you could say that if you, if you I'm mean, dramatically polarizing the world of parents now but basically you can say there are two types of parents and, and opposite ends of the scale you have people that are very sort of free-range parents some of them philosophically so saying my kids can do whatever they want they should that's the philosophically correct way of doing it i should not control it they should be self-directing some parents treat their children that way but maybe with less intent it's just i don't have time to figure this out they're gonna have to figure it out themselves because i'm working double shifts so (laughs) so they they might not look at it philosophically the same but the outcome is the same which is basically the kids do whatever they want and then you have people again polarizing at the other end of the scale which is like i know everything my children is doing and they should be only be doing high quality things with a specific intent and i want to know everything that they're watching looking at and so on and so forth so obviously people in between but if if we look Mm, at those two two groups the the group of like i'll let my kids do anything they were perfectly happy with youtube they had no, and, and that that's the vast majority of people anyway. So sort of like they were perfectly happy with YouTube. Like, I don't really know what they're watching on YouTube anyway. I don't know what's going on there. This is not a problem. I'm not looking for an alternative. And I'm certainly not looking for an alternative that you have to pay for. So all of those people were immediately out. That wasn't a shock, but that was good to have that clarified. Then we have people on the other end, which were very concerned about media and concerned about children's products. And we thought, these are the ones we should be in with a winning chance for because they probably are the talk about customers anyway. Mm-hmm. Because since we were a paid product, there are plenty of free products in the regular categories too. If you don't care at all, why would you ever buy an app? So we thought we should have a disproportionate amount of them. And that was true. However, crucial point that we got wrong, we asked them and they said, we go to Tokavoka to not have my kids watch videos. Mm. This is the sole purpose almost of why you're on these iPads and from the beginning is I want my kids to watch less. I don't want them to watch better. I don't want them to watch at all. Mm. So what you're doing here is you're coming in and you're offering me the precise thing I do not want. Uh, and when we realized that, we shut it down. Because mm. that was like, this is, this is, we cannot, we're never going to get past this. This I've, was a fundamental misunder, misunderstanding of, uh, in consumer insight. I mean, I, f- I feel like we could have an entire episode just on that topic. I mean, with the benefit of hindsight and with everything that's going on currently, how do you think about the video landscape for kids and families? We should have, knowing what I know now, we should have never tried to go head to head with these. I think that the platform war was already over before we even got into it. Like, And thinking that that we could carve a small niche out of it was a, was a mistake. We should have... Um, produced programming for the platforms instead and I think had we done that mm-hmm. starting then we would have been in a I still say weeks it feels like that sometimes but I don't 
they then would have been in a fantastic position today because the the being a video um, producer today, you've probably never had a better market mm. ever in children's programming than you have right now. There's never been more buyers. There's never been more money. There's never been more viewership. Um, it's just it's, it's a fantastic environment to be in if you have something to sell. Mm. Um, and uh, and but that so had had we started in, in that end of things, we would have been perfectly positioned now. Video was the right macro. It is the place to build new brands. That's where we should have gone. So we should just not have done it in that way. But but do you think you know over the next few years that you know the video landscape for kids and family has essentially been settled? We you know what is going to be is what we have now in terms of you know a couple of big subscription providers, YouTube on the Avod side, YouTube Kids sort of hovering around. I think it's incredibly tricky to, to launch a new platform now and I'm, I'm you know there's, there's a few examples in the kids space of people trying and they've been trying for a long time I think it's going to be increasingly difficult to justify um, the general subscription dollars flowing out of everybody's wallet on a monthly basis right. for a service which is dedicated to children when, when the others are you know the, the children side of Hulu or the children's side of Netflix is perfectly sufficient and mm. for the vast majority youtube is perfectly sufficient too mm. without spending a penny mm. so, so i think i think it's very very tricky and i would uh, i i'm i'm skeptical that there's room for a lot of others uh, to really to reach any significant scale and taka was acquired by spinmaster in i think it was towards the end of 2016. um or yes in- we were because we were doing this was another we're starting both the consumer products division starting Tokyo TV in a new city and selling the company at the same time, which in hindsight was also not a super great decision. Not something that I had that much control over because right. I, that just kind of happened. I didn't know I didn't know that we were selling the company before right. they told me that this is happening. So, it seemed, I mean, it seemed a strange decision by Bonnier. I, mean, I, I, I vaguely recall they were under some financial pressures, I think. I don't know what was public on that. Uh, I think the issue was was if, you know, I referred to them before as a friendly banker. So up until then, more or less, we had been depositing money into right. the bank. And now we're starting to withdraw because right. we were investing in new things. And we were saying, like, OK, if we're actually going to change this significantly, our position and change the brand, we're going to have to invest. We're going to have to do things that we haven't done before. And that's expensive. And I think Bonnier felt, oh, we now turned into a bank where people go and get money as opposed to people go and put money in. We don't want to be that kind of bank. Um, it's not as simple as that, but there was there was there were other forces at play. Like they, mm. this is not core business for them. They did not know how to handle this and had a hard time supporting it. Like we're not a book publisher. Right. We're not a cinema. It was very hard for them to kind of fully understand it, and it was never going to be a core holding because they weren't really interested in the category. Mm. This was more of a fluke that we happened to end up doing something that that worked spectacularly well. But it was not because of sort of strategic foresight on their sense. There was no one saying we should be in kids media. This is a strategic priority. It's just, we have a kids company now. Mm. What do we do with it? I don't know, but they're making money, so it doesn't matter, I think, to make life easy. And then suddenly when we were not making money, they're saying, we should probably get rid of this. I'm being slightly cynical, but that, that was more or less what happened. So we weren't making a huge dent in Bonnier as a whole because they were so big that we were relatively, you know, we weren't, we weren't tanking the company by any means. But as a matter of principle, an old family-owned company, they live off their own cash flow. Mm. So, you know, you're either putting money in or taking money out. So when we started taking money out, there was pressure to sort of say, maybe we, 
maybe this is better served in some other some other ownership constellation. And today you are an advisor to a number of companies in the San Francisco area, at least, or possibly beyond. Uh, all over the place, actually. It's right. it's uh, it's been a lot of lot of Europe. I've done some things in the Middle East and uh, some things on both coasts in America. And so is, that, is that still in the family space or more broadly? It's a bit of both. I'd say half of it is 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 family related, and the other half is more sort of. Uh, consumer trends, um, mm. consumer insights in, in general, which is kind of the thing I was doing prior to Tokaboka. Actually, my, my old Bonio job was, I think it was the future, a director of future media and technology, uh, something like that, very fancy title, but was basically saying what's happening in the world and what are people doing. Right. That's kind of what I'm doing now too. It's, 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 so yeah, half of it is family oriented and the other half is more, more like that. And my, my final question to wrap up this episode, Bjorn, you've been living in San Francisco for, what did you say, seven or eight yeah, years? Yes, almost seven years. Um, so you've been right up close to sort of what, what big tech, you know, what Facebook and Google and everyone else has been doing or not doing in the family and kids space. Um, do you think there are changes coming? Do you think that, that, that sort of those companies understand kids and family? Um, I mean, it's, it, you know, clearly it's different to how it was seven or eight years ago. But how, how do you think about, you know, I suppose if you were to briefly put back on your futurologist hat, right. how do you see big tech and family and kids interacting in the future? So much less has happened than I thought when I came into this. I thought this is an early market. We're going to see significant structural changes in terms of discoverability, marketing options, uh, parental controls, just all of these sorts of things that infrastructure basically that this space needs and most of it has still to this day not ever shown up and I'm I'm doubtful that this is a priority mm-hmm. uh, it's a very hard space to monetize um, as anyone who's ever tried making kids app and people listening to this will know this is a tricky thing to do there are easier ways of making money than this um, I think as sort of the platform's focus shifts from sort of getting a broad base of developers in and doing interesting things on the platform, which is where we were, to now, which is very much, we need to make money on services. Mm. And Apple's focus on that specifically. Apple are going to focus their attention very likely on categories that monetize really, really well. And kids is not one of those. So it seems unlikely to me with with this hat on, uh, saying that, that there's going to be significant investment and changes from a structural perspective in the kids space. Whatever's going to happen is going to have to come from the developer side and doing it within sort of the ecosystem as it looks right now. That is a hard thing to do. Interesting. Uh, Well, you've been listening to Bjorn Jeffrey, um, founder and former CEO of Takabaka. You've been listening to me, Dylan Collins. Uh, If you enjoy this podcast, please tell a friend about it. Um, You can follow it as ever on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and basically anywhere you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening.